Welcome. This is the Tulsa World Editorial Podcast. I am Jenny Graham, the editorial's editor. I'm Bobby Set, editorial writer. And we're just going to talk about a few things that happened this week and our thoughts on it. And the first thing that comes up is COVID. And uh, today or yesterday, I saw that we set the second highest testing record since the pandemic began in Oklahoma for positivity and that the hospitals are alarmed and that's concerning. But, uh, and I was telling Bob earlier that yesterday I had to get a COVID test for my kids and myself and we couldn't, it's like impossible to find one. We went and waited two hours at a Broken Arrow uh, urgent care in our cars. And I will say right now, those people work hard. They're in like winter parkas at night, kept the line moving. And it was, and it was long, but they, I mean, I thank them because they're, they're working long hours into the evening to, to do testing and there's just not enough testing. So if you think you might have it or been exposed, it's really frustrating. I mean, it's, it's, I'm really disappointed that two years into the pandemic and we still don't have systems that can make this readily available. I mean, it's frustrating. So, I mean, Bob, have you had to get a, a test yet? You know, I haven't I yet, but the, uh, boy, I tell you, the, the thing that I'm seeing here is this weird confluence, I suppose, of, oh, wow, here comes Omicron and it's, it's going to infect everybody and just this COVID fatigue. And I, I think that I hate to, you know, be one of those people that tries to create some kind of a conspiracy line of thinking. But at least here in Oklahoma, we've kind of gone down this steady path of, you know, maybe doing a little less and a little less and a little less about COVID, COVID information, COVID mitigation and all that kind of stuff. Kind of creates this perfect storm of here comes the most infectious variant of COVID-19 that we have seen to date. And despite that, you know, two years of knowing what this is all about and everything and what we need to, to check it out, somehow, somehow we get blindsided. Yes. It's, just, it's crazy. And it's, and it's, it is frustrating. And, and I'm just, we should know better. And I, you know, I don't know the answer. And I know that, and the tests on the shelves, we got, we had one left over from a month ago. And the reason we were in that line yesterday is because my daughter took it and we had an all out argument in our house over whether it was positive or not, because it's like, there are two little lines you got to look for. Well, there was one and we had a hella debate. And when you're arguing with a teenage girl over whether there's a line or not, it just spirals. So <laughs> I just, at six o'clock last night, I'm like, let's get in the car. We're going to go to BA, we're going to sit in this line, and we'll find out in 48 hours. But, I mean, that's the best we can do. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, but, you know, the, 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 the next part of this is that the schools are closing. Yep. And my daughter yesterday was in a class where only six kids were. They were there. All mm -hmm. the rest of the kids were out with COVID, not exposed with COVID, out with COVID. And so my kids' schools were just, like, waiting any day for them to say we're in distance learning. And I was reading today that all of union schools are out, two BA schools are out, I think something like eight Tulsa public schools are out. 
because of illnesses, because the staff are not there. And, 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 and I'm seeing this, um, the evil of social media, as I call it, critics of public schools are now criticizing schools for going to distance learning when it's clear that there's no one there to teach. And, and so I'm, I'm floored that this is taking off. Yesterday I was reading on some, you know, I, I shouldn't, but you read these and, and like another school, there's a conspiracy that this is going to lead to some, I don't, they don't even, I don't even know what the conspiracy is, but it's something bad in their minds. And I just, I just want to scream, like, if you're not going to substitute, just stop, just don't say anything because that's, that's the other part of this is you still have this pushback on all things COVID. Like it's not really happening. And, and people on the ground were like screaming going, yes, yes, this is really happening. So I don't know. Do you keep up with that at all? You know, I do. And it's, it's just kind of funny that we are so accustomed to everything being there, being what we want, when we want it and all that kind of thing. You know, we saw this at the very beginning of COVID where all of a sudden we have this run on supplies. So you got all the hand sanitizers and the toilet paper and everything like that. Everyone thought they were going to need to get all this stuff. And then everyone gets mad when there's a huge rush. Well, it's like, okay, you know, it's, this is not like some magic box that you can put, stick your hand in and suddenly everything appears. And now we're in the situation, we're not talking about goods, we're talking about people. So in the minds of some people, they're thinking, well, they should just be in school. And it's like, well, what imaginary teachers are going to show up if half of them are sick with COVID? <laughs> right. What, what school, what kind of a classroom are we going to have when two-thirds or three-fourths of the kids aren't there because they're sick with COVID? We can't just magically make things appear and everything be hunky-dory again. This is just a, a reminder a gentle reminder that we are still in a pandemic. We do have, we do we have are. some tools. <laughs> we, have a, we have a vaccine. We, we are in a, in a, in a vaccine resistant state. And I don't know what it'll take to um, convince people that the vaccines are our best tool. I mean, you still get it, but you won't die from it, you know. Well, what I would tell people right now is when you're in a situation like this, you know, we're not, we're not in like a video game where you can just kind of press a few buttons, things are better, two weeks, we're done. This is like a 12-round boxing match, and you're going to take hits. It's going to keep punching. So... And that's where we're in the middle of this right now. It's not one thing where there's this arc going up of bad things happening and then an arc going down where things get better. It's coming in waves. It's coming in punches. It's coming in combinations. And it just keeps coming. The only way to win something like that is you got to fight back. And fighting back doesn't mean standing there with your gloves down, pretending the guy across the ring from you doesn't exist because he's coming for you. He's going to be throwing haymakers. So when you, when you're talking about the things that you're seeing on social media, that is the guy standing in the ring with his hands down saying, I don't see nobody. 
<laughs> when they're just about ready to get punched in the face. It's the fatigue too. I mean, yeah. I'm, I think we're both kind of like, well, we want to address it in an editorial, but then what more do we say? <laughs> but I mean, it's that ongoing, you know, but there are some heroes in there. Like I could say the St. Francis people I was really impressed with. We have researchers that are researching wastewater. I can't think of anything more gross than that. But they're researching <laughs> wastewater, and they were the first to find Omicron in our state. They were the first we, we you know, probably, a month ago to say, hey, this is coming, and they're right. So we have some people who are really doing amazing work. So, so we, we got to have some gold stars for the poop patrol. They're saving, our, <laughs> they're saving our bacon right now in terms of tracking the disease when everything else seems to be getting undermined. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the next big issue this week was the January 6th insurrection. We, get, we go from one great topic to another. Yes. But um, I was really disappointed that not one member of our congressional delegation mentioned anything of it. I mean, one of them was on the floor of the Senate arguing at the time. Another didn't get out of the chambers fast enough and was, you know, watched a person get killed. And I'm just, um, I'm struck by that. And I wrote a column on it, but I'm wondering what your, what your thoughts were that day, Bob? Well, I remember a year ago when it happened. This, this is me kind of just before I was starting my shift at work. At that time I was working nights. So I was watching a little bit of the news and, you know, scrolling through the phone. And I see something where somebody says, the Capitol has been breached. And I'm thinking, okay, folks calm down don't be so hyperbolic you know if you angry people walking around shouting in the capitol is not going to be a big deal don't make this out to be something more than it is but guess what it was what it was it, it was. was a violent interaction where the the thin blue line was under attack and i just as the day went by i was just gobsmacked I mean, this was like stuff you'd expect to see out of, you know, a, a place, some third world country, a developing nation with a weak government that's about ready to get, you know, overthrown. This is the United States of America, and we got this going on here. You know, members of Congress, you know, being ushered into safe rooms so they don't get hurt or, God forbid, killed or something like that. So that day I was pretty hot. And I think I wrote something up and threw it on social media and just basically concluded that January 6th was a shameful day for this country. And it was. A year later, I'm still kind of hot about it. Yeah, um, I know. it was interesting. You, you said that you were, you were more mad than my column was. And I, I kind of took the tact of, I can still get mad over it, but I feel like we have to move beyond it. And that's hard because right now we have so many people that are still stuck on that day. They, yes. they still can't. I mean, I got an email this morning of someone saying, you know, you know, criticizing me for writing the column, saying that I was overblowing it, that it was not as bad or it was all, you know, they were really Democrats. They were really whatever. And so until I think we can, I mean, I understand being mad about it, but don't you think we also ought to in some way push push beyond it in some way? I mean, I, I don't know. Well, the way we push beyond it is you have to deal with it. Uh, if you just, I, I think that what you're seeing among some members of Congress, including our delegation, is they want us to forget about it. They want us to move on, so to speak. You know, that not that big of a deal or whatnot. 
and I don't think that's the way to go because, you know, it's kind of the give an inch, they take a mile kind of thing. People have talked about this as being maybe a dress rehearsal for something that could be studied, re-engineered, and maybe launched again in a more successful way, which more successful way means the actual rule of law being subverted and uh, the mob rule wins. It means treason. I use the word treason, and I think we did in the editorial, and I, I just got people that it wasn't treason. Like, it, they're literally attacking the government wanting to kill elected leaders. And I don't, we can't come to an agreement on that. I don't well, know. You're, you're talking about with what was going on on January 6th of that day is a constitutionally mandated process that Congress has to go through to certify an election. That's not something that's optional. That is something that is in our laws, our most basic laws that you have to do. And if you're going in there with the mindset of we're going to stop that from happening, we're, you're actually talking about undermining the rule of law. And our country is built as such that if we do not go by rule of law, we've kind of lost who we are. That's the thing we need to cure. People need to understand that if we don't support the idea of America and the ideas that are embodied in the Constitution, you don't have a country anymore, or at least not one that we have grown for nearly a quarter of a century to, to know and respect and love. You've got something else. And what that something else is, I mean, if, if the something else is the, the people who are willing to be the most violent are the ones in charge, I, I don't know what to say to that. You know, you know, this kind of dovetails into what your column is for this weekend, which is it's asking the question, why are evangelicals so angry? And I, <laughs> I've wrestled with that myself because some of the people who I love, who are I'm related to, I've been friends with forever, <laughs> there's this anger. And, and from the outside looking at their lives, I'm like, why are they so angry? They've got a loving family. They've got, you know, they're financially secure. They've got all these things going for them. Why, where is that anger coming from? And, and you address it from the evangelicals perspective. So mm -hmm. what, what was your takeaway from your research on that? Well, it's a few things. Um, there is within, uh, within the Bible itself, there is a lot of language in there that warns Christians that <clears throat> people are going to look at you different for what you believe. So you need to be prepared to face any kind of negative consequences. And that was a lot of that was written at a time, you know, when the early believers were living under Roman rule and the religion definitely was under threat, not just from the Romans, but also against uh, the, the local rulers in Judea at the time. So there definitely was an umbrella of we are under some sort of attack here. And that carries over into today, even though I would say that the evangelical right has a very strong, powerful position in this country in terms of politics, I would almost say maybe even outsized, given the numbers and the influence that they have. And whatever the case may be, I mean, I think for the longest time, the Judeo-Christian traditional 
mindset of what America is has held sway in this country for such a long time that the slightest movements away from that can sometimes seem like an attack. And when you start seeing larger changes, larger societal changes, all of a sudden that stuff starts to look a lot more urgent in the minds of people who may already be thinking our way of life will eventually be scrutinized, uh, criticized, punished, and that kind of thing. So uh, you could check out the the hot, you know, the big hot issues that are uh, that are out there right now. That especially in the last ten years that have come up, or the last thirty years, I guess, forty years. Roe v. Wade, uh, same-sex marriage, stuff like that. Uh, those became major flashpoints. And then you build on those with other things in the news that are happening that maybe folks within that group may not be happy with. And it does turn into this thing of, man, the country really is going to hell in a handbasket and I'm not happy about it. So I think that is what we're seeing right now. And it is being reflected, not just not just in the sermons, not just in radio shows or people on talk shows or anything like that, but actual people who are running for office now. And some of these folks are winning and they are not happy and they are not the type who are going to be interested in old school political ideas of compromise and working together. And I think that's where that meanness comes from. I mean, there, yeah. politics has always been rough and tumble, but there is a... You know, like with our jobs, there there was always, you know, relationships to be had with the communications people or chiefs of staff or, you know, the officials themselves. And there is now this this inherent tension and 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 just frankly meanness that goes on. And I do kind of wonder, you you brought up the whole idea of the scrutiny. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, we think about statues being taken down and renaming things. And I do kind of wonder all the time, you know, and I... I I always admired Thomas Jefferson and his writings, but he was involved with human trafficking and he owned mm -hmm. people. And that is not, it's hard to reconcile and get over. But at the time you hear people, people say, well, that was what they did at the time as if excusing it. But I often mm -hmm. think, what are we doing now that 50, a hundred, so on years, people look back and go, what were you thinking? This was a horrible <laughs> thing you did. So I'm constantly wondering, what is the issue that we are ignoring or that we look at as normal that is actually being very damaging? And, and I think we could debate that forever, but yeah. I, I wonder if that goes to it too, that, that the idea is we have to preserve what we have so that doesn't happen. But the reality is, Pete, you know, progress happens and no one is bound to live by the values we hold now. A hundred years from now, the world's going to be very different than it was a hundred years ago. And so that's where... I think it's just the evolution of, of time or whatever, but, but we got to make room for each other. I think that's the bottom line that we have is this country is set up in such a way that we're all supposed to be given the freedom to live as we wish to live, as long as it's not hurting other people. So the country is changing. The demographics of it are changing in terms of religion, in terms of nationality, uh, personal beliefs, everything. It just is, and it always has been, you know, since its founding, the country has gone through changes. Where we find our strength is quite simply, we make room for each other. There's stuff we disagree on. Sometimes you just gotta let it be. 
Sometimes yeah. you find compromise and then you find areas where you can find agreement on and you move forward. Just those if it always steps. becomes my way or the highway on everything, then we got a problem. You know, the, the other problem we're having locally moving into our next topic is gun violence. Yeah. I mean, we've, uh, I was really bothered over the holidays to find out that a 13 year old shot and killed another 13 year old. And then there was a group of well, how many people? Nine people yeah. and this is all in the 61st street and peoria avenue area in tulsa and just shooting off 75 rounds no one I, I still can't believe no one was injured or hurt but we've had problems that corridor for well i've lived here 30 years and it's been since before that and um we have a gun violence problem and we, we do and I, you know, we, we wrote us and we, our board wanted to address this. It's become a very important issue among our board. And, um, and I guess we're just tired of the same old thing. I mean, it's, you know, we had a quadruple shooting there, what, 10 years ago? And we yeah. thought things were going to change. And we had these meetings and, and we had a community resource officer. And they got better. And we sort of ignored it. Now we're, you know, it just seems like a cycle that it just never seems to end. And, uh and I think we're just kind of tired of it. And I don't know what the answer is, but we'd like more information from, from city officials, from the police chief to city councilors to the mayor, whoever. But I just think we don't have enough information to know what, what is happening there. Right. That's the thing that struck me is we hear the best descriptions that I've had from people or from authorities on this is, uh, we're looking at repeat violent offenders, and these are gang beefs. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean anything to anybody? I mean, okay, yeah. there's bad people doing bad things, and they're involved in gangs. Well, you know, what else is new? The sky is blue and water is wet. Who are these people? What are they connected to? What are some of the ways the community can start working on this together? Mm -hmm. And when I'm looking at coverage of, say, the city council right now, We've had a lot of debates about law enforcement, uh, local law enforcement issues and stuff like that. Uh, we may not, we don't have enough police on the streets. Attrition is high. There is problems with uh, a lot of people in the community have problems with uh, officer-involved shootings and how that intersects with race. Um, getting the police adequately funded, these kind of issues come up. What I don't hear people talking about is this. We've got a section in our community that one person described as a no man's land where people feel the freedom to come out here and settle their beasts with firearms. Mm -hmm. Is that really supposed to be how a city is supposed to be? You know, how's that work? Why is it that way? You know, some more answers, maybe some more detailed communication, I think would be helpful right now. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm wondering how many other agencies are involved with this. I mean, if we're talking... Yeah you know, gangs, are they out-of-state gangs? Do we have federal involvement? Are there, you know, do we have suburban police officers? I mean, I don't know how it all works. And it's, it's, it does seem like we have less information to go on. And, um, and it's frustrating. I mean, we need to get the guns out of the hands of bad people, but we're in a, in a very pro-gun state. And I, I absolutely back the second amendment. And I think people should have a right to own guns as long as they're you know, not criminals and don't have domestic violence in their backgrounds and don't have mental health issues. Um, I, I'm all for that. But at the same time, 
what we're seeing in that area is just, it, it's not a way to live. We have to, and I don't know, we just have to do more about it. And I, I'm expecting more from our city officials from all areas. Not, and I don't think it's just a police problem. I think the police need to be a little bit more upfront about what's happening in real time. Cause it seems like mm. there's a lag of like 24, 48 hours for basic information that I mean from all sectors. And um, cause I think it's going to take the whole community to, 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 figure out what the, what is finally going on. So, um, well, to that point, you and I both know this, we've, we've, you know, covered police, you know, law enforcement issues in the past for many, many years. This is a hard problem. You know, the 61st and Peoria area has been a problematic thing for violent crime for a long time now. It has not been solved. It is difficult. I get that. But what we need, I think, is maybe a more comprehensive and vocal sign of involvement from our authorities. And that includes, like you said, our city council, the mayor's office, and whoever else might have their hands in this. Because honestly, most of our readers live in places that are perfectly safe. They don't see anything like this. But put yourself in their shoes who live in one of those apartment blocks or some of the houses around there where you got to wonder if you're going over to the corner store, if a bunch of wild bullets are going to start flying around, it's going to bean you in the head or it's going to start, you know, is someone going to bring an AK and bullets start flying through the drywall in your apartment while you're watching TV at night? That is no way to live. That is unacceptable in this city. At least it should be. And I think that's something that I would like to see reflected from the people who are our leaders. And it could be issues of landlords. I mean, maybe some of this goes back to yeah, what are be. our, you know, tenant laws? You know, are, or do we have people who feel powerless because they are living in, you know, under a slumlord? I mean, I don't know what the issue is. And I think we need to get at that. Sure, so sure. so that, that was on our radar, certainly. And um, we would be, re we will be writing more about that, both. I know that the news reporters and, and we'll be mm -hmm. on that. So, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you know, as this week sort of ends, I think we were talking earlier about, uh, of all things, Betty White and yeah. Sydney Poitier. And Sydney Poitier died this morning or yesterday at age 94 and uh, Betty White was 99. And you, you think, and I, of course I was, saying there's always three isn't that right bob yeah seems three. that always so comes in threes more. all the 90 something famous people need to be sort of like taking some vitamin c right now so right um but you know the i love those long lives i mean it's it's like it's sad but it's also such a celebration i mean i love watching old sydney Poitier movies i mean he's yeah. just so oh man his acting is just I, I have, I mean, there's no one like him. I mean, he was just this beautiful, elegant actor who could just pull everything off and just being the first to do what he did. It's just amazing. I'm going to, I want to go back and watch some of his old movies today. When I read that this morning, I'm like, Oh, yeah. I've got to watch, you know, guess first who's black African or first black actor to win an Oscar. I mean, if you haven't, if, I guess if you're old enough, everybody knows that line, they call me Mr. Tibbs. Yes. We know who that is. And he kind of threw out a sense of, of dignity within uh, for his community that was pretty amazing. 
Plus, he was a great actor, and it didn't matter what he was in. Like you said, he could be in something funny. He could be in something serious. Uh, I keep thinking about a movie that probably wasn't, you know, considered cinematic art at the time, but I enjoyed it called The Jackal, and he plays uh, an FBI agent where he and he's and just like he is in everything, he was great in it. But he could you just know. pull off the most um, highbrow of roles and and get gritty too. I mean, that's just he he was kind of that 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 first I remember seeing kind of bridge those that yeah. type of acting over generations, and it, he was fabulous. And of course, Betty. There were so many people upset about Betty White. Yeah, I was love Betty White. I mean, but, but I mean, people were were genuinely just um, upset. You know, like it, it's just when when you see those. Sort of, uh, I, I think what I loved, I think what everyone loved about her was just seeing how she acted almost up till till the very end. I mean, to have a career where you are doing what you're doing before television. I mean, she she mm -hmm. was on television from the moment television started, and being able to do what you love up through your 90s. I mean, wouldn't everyone love that life? You know. And you know, it was great about her. Um, in addition to, you know, the work that she did on screen. I think what people loved about her is she just was herself. And she was one of those people that was like, you know what? I'm going to say what I want to say. And I don't really care if it makes somebody mad. Here you go. This is the way things are. People love that about her. You know, that's that's the kind of thing that got her on SNL. You yeah. know, in her 80s on SNL, okay? You know, the... And she just was one of those people that was seriously beloved. Also, her and Poitier kind of have this great intersection of being groundbreaking people in, in terms of civil rights. A lot of people don't really know this, but, you know, she had a variety show back in, the, I don't know, the 50s or 60s or something like that. She had a tap dancer who was going to be on there. He was African-American. And she was under a lot of pressure to pull the guy. She's like, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to have him on, and I'm going to give him extra time to perform. That takes, going back then, especially when her career was much younger at that time, where she would have a lot to lose. Yeah, she, she didn't like, have as much I don't care. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. That's why she, that is one of the reasons why she has such great staying power. And, you know, just watching Sidney Poitier do what he did with, like I said, dignity, class, professionalism, excellence. That's why he was an icon, is an icon. He, he will remain an icon way, way past the day that he's, you know, has his funeral. So just kind of interesting. So, so with that, it's been an, an interesting week. And what Very I love about our jobs is that we don't know what's coming up. It's like every day we wake up and see what the world has for us. So um, anyway, I hope everyone got something out of our thoughts and that you will read our pieces and feel free to respond to us. So And make you. sure to let us know next week how your test came out. Oh, I will. Yeah, we want to know. We have we have forty eight hours to wait, but um, don't, get, don't get sick, don't get no funky bug off of this thing, and get better, okay? Oh well, I I hope so. So you know, <laughs> well, everyone's the you know, it's that ongoing. Do you have allergies or do you have COVID? And so we don't know. So we're gonna see. So, Is that you, Rona? Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, take care, everybody. We'll talk next week. See you Bye. later.